Well, good morning. If you came in late, uh, I'm not Ken Weitzman. I have the same hairdo that Ken has, but I'm not him. My name's Ed Underwood. I'm from Church of the Open Door in Southern California, and uh, Ken privileged me to come and speak to Antioch. I, uh, it's one of my favorite churches to preach in besides Church of the Open Door. Got my water with me today. I was just down in Cannon Beach, Cannon Beach Conference Center, speaking for a week. And uh, I'm, I'm just happy to get to Bend so I can dry, dry out. It's, uh, man, people actually choose to live there. That just, uh, that fascinates me. Uh, it's a great place, great place to look at, but man, alive, it's cold. I, I want to bring a message today. Uh, Ken asked me to speak on discipleship, and discipleship is at my heart. I thought of a lot of things I could do. In fact, I just finished this series on discipleship at Cannon Beach, and the, the main passage was Luke 14, 25 through 35, uh, the, the cost of discipleship. And I thought about doing that, but since I'm at Antioch, and I, and I feel more comfortable here, I'm going to risk something. Uh, I want to bring the message to you that I brought to Church of the Open Door about four years ago. And uh, what I've found is, uh, and this is the reason this is risky, uh, this is the message, when I preached this at Church of the Open Door, this is the message that I got uh, the most uh, pushback on of any message I've ever preached in the 15 years I've been at Church of the Open Door. Uh, not the content. People uh, are grudgingly admitting that the content is right, since it's, just warn you now, it's a... Uh, it's a sermon on, on uh, money and how we use it. Uh, so there's always pushback on that one uh, because, uh, you know, Glendora, like Bend, is a very affluent white place. And in very affluent white places, uh, people just typically, you know, Christians, are uh, a little squirmy when we talk about money, and we should be a little squirmy because that's one of our main problems. Anyway, but I, I always get that. Uh, but it's the application. The application was what, uh, especially uh, Christians who have been, you know, third, fourth generation grace Christians, and I, I'm a grace guy, uh, were surprised and angered that I did it. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to do it is uh, that, one, I believe it's true. And I really believe it's what the Word of God says. And, and I don't think it's right to hold back. Listen, if you know something that was really important to someone, if you know something that you know would bless their life, if you know something that if they would just receive it, it would absolutely transform a big part of their life, then, um, then I think it's important to tell them. And that's, that's the way I introduced it to Church of the Open Door. I just told them, I love you guys, and there's something that I have experienced from God's Word and in my relationship with Christ that means everything to me. And the application at the end, I, not only did I get the most pushback, but I've also heard more stories about people who, uh, from people who applied this to their life and, uh, and it has deepened uh, their relationship with the Lord Jesus. So with all that, 
Let me pray. I want to pray uh, for what we're doing here, and then I want to pray for uh, my, one of my partners in ministry at Church of the Open Door, a man named David Anderson. He is preaching uh, there, so I want to pray for him too, if you don't mind. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have as believer priests, as those who are ambassadors of Christ to receive your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit teaches us. I want to pray for David Anderson and uh, the, our, my community of faith, my faith family at Church of the Open Door. I pray that you would give David uh, total freedom to preach his heart out of Galatians. And I pray that you would bless him with a responsive uh, flock. And then, Father, I do pray that you would help me to make this clear and that it would be something that devoted disciples of Christ would at least consider and some might even embrace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think there's any doubt that the Bible says that... uh, How we handle our money, how we handle our money tells God how we'll handle his power. There's very clear teachings of Jesus. How we handle our money will tell God uh, how we will handle his power. I also believe that how we handle our money has potential to deepen our relationship with the Lord Jesus in a, in, in a very particular way and in a, in, in a good way. I want to turn you to three passages. The first is Luke 16.10. Luke 16.10. Luke 16.10. And I'm going to read it first from uh, the New King James translation, which is the one that I've been using uh, for years. And then uh, it's on the screen with the English Standard version. And I love that one too. Uh, This is Jesus teaching the parable of the unjust steward. He's teaching on, uh, a steward is a manager, he's teaching on uh, the management of resources in general. Verse 10, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. That's the main verse. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the, this is the application. Therefore, verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, just meaning money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And the unrighteous there isn't speaking that money is unrighteous. It is a comparative. It's unrighteous compared to what true riches are. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, meaning all that God has given us, it all belongs to God, who will give you what is your own? And then verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the English Standard Version, it says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a way, in a very little, uh, is also dishonest in much. The little and the much, little and the much. Now, I I can tell you for sure what that doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean what the health, wealth, and prosperity guys and the TV evangelists say. What they tell you is, uh, well, you gotta be, if, if, you're, if you're faithful in a little, I was talking about seed money. If you're faithful in a little, God will give you a lot more. And they, they say it all applies to money, which means is uh, that it's kind of like a bribe. You know, I'm gonna bribe God by giving to the church, and God is going to say, now you got me. I'm gonna have to make you rich. It, 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 first of all, it's lousy, lousy exegesis and interpretation. Second, I always give the people at Church of the Open Door uh, a couple of tests. Uh, first one is the Cambodia test. The Cambodia test is, if this doesn't work in Cambodia, it's not Christianity. The, the Cambodian isn't gonna think, wow, if I give money to the church, God's gonna give me a Rolex. So it doesn't pass the Cambodia test. Second, it doesn't pass the Jesus test. Could you even imagine Jesus saying, here's why I came. I came so that you could manage your life and you could bribe me in such a way that you would become rich, because that's what I'm all about, the rich people. It doesn't pass the Jesus test. And then third, and sometimes this is the most reliable test, it doesn't pass the weird test. Well, I always tell people, when somebody's teaching something on the radio or some Christian's telling you something and you get in some weirdo Christian Bible study, uh, this is what you know. If it sounds weird, it is weird. If it sounds weird, it is weird. The little and the much in Luke 16 has nothing to do with getting rich. The little in he who is faithful in a little is what, means, uh, is what means a lot to us, but little to God. This is from God's perspective. You know, God doesn't need money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need money. Money is absolute. God could care less about our money except that he knows that our money means a lot to us. Does that make sense? Our money means a lot to us. If you don't think your money means a lot to you, what do Christians typically say when there's a sermon on money? Oh, man. I've had people at Church of the Open Door. I preach on giving twice a year unless it's in the text in the passage that I, come through, that I go to. And every time, I'll hear someone say, man, that's all Christians talk, that's all preachers talk about is money. I'm going, two times out of 52. No, that, it just lets us know. It means a lot to us. And we have to admit that. It means a lot to us. But it doesn't mean anything to God. Um, the much is, in, is faithful also in much is what means the most to God. The much is what means the most to God. Because he applies it. He says, you can't serve money and God. The little is what means most to us. The much is what means most to God. What means most to God 
is his son's work in the church age of building the church. What means the most to God is people. What means the most to God is the Holy Spirit transforming men and women, boys and girls, delivering us from darkness, translating us into the kingdom of the son of his love, and, and growing us so that we become more and more like Jesus Christ. What matters most to God is what the Holy Spirit is doing on earth, and that is glorifying him by transforming lives. What means the most to God is people. What means the most to God is people. And, we, and he says, Jesus says, uh, and if we trust him with what he knows is of no value, but he knows we value it, our money, then he will trust us with what he knows are true riches. People and the works that we do that have eternal significance. Uh, this is a, a way that we demonstrate. It's like if, you, uh, if you're selling a house and somebody comes by and they say, oh, this is the greatest house. I'm going to buy this house. Please don't sell it to anyone else. Promise me you won't sell it to anyone else. Our reaction to that is, <coughs> okay, would you put some earnest money down? Now, what would we do if they said, well, <coughs> I don't want to do earnest money. I don't want to put down any earnest money right now. This is a bad time of life for me. I've had some sicknesses. I've got some things going on. We've got a vacation. We've got to buy the kids school clothes. I've been diminished at work. I don't have a lot of money right now, uh, but I, I, I want you to know, I promise you, I really, you can trust me. I'm going to buy this house. Don't give it to anybody else. Well, we know that they're just dreaming. They're just dreaming. They're not ready to invest in what they say they want. And this is the way God looks, uh, I believe, that God looks at our money. Uh, he, he says, your view of money is telling me a lot of what I can trust you with. If you don't think it's that, that's important, look at John 2, 23 through 25, when the Judean believers wanted to follow Jesus. And in John, it says they believed in his name. That's a technical term for a Christian. And these Judean believers wanted to follow Christ. And Christ said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to impisteo, I'm not going to entrust, I'm not going to entrust what I'm doing to you. And then it goes on to say, because he knew what was in their heart. Transfer, transfers right into John 3, where he meets Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is all covered over with concerns that are worldly, and he, and he, he hears Jesus telling him he'll give him eternal life, but it's not till the end of the book of John that we see Nicodemus actually investing in the kingdom of God and standing up for Jesus Christ. It's, it's much like that. He knows what's in our heart. Now, he doesn't, when we give him our money, he's not saying, oh, good, that surprised me. I wasn't expecting you to do that. It's for us to understand that he knows already how, how all in we are with Jesus Christ by our view of money. And it's what's most important to us. Now, you might deceive yourself and all your Christian friends by saying you really want your life to count for Christ and that, some, and that you want significance in his kingdom 
And that's what you want, want, want most. But you're not fooling God. He's looking for some sign that you would know that he knows that you're really in with him. Your good faith deposit of your little that tells him you might be the type of Christian he can trust with his precious much. I firmly believe that the way Ed Underwood handles my money, the way Ed and Judy Underwood handle our money, if we're clinging to it, if we're selfish with it, if we're begrudging that we don't have enough of it, just never, never forget that uh, what God is doing in your life today is called your reality. Your reality. What he has given you today, the resources he's given you today are the resources that he has provided. There's nothing wrong with what he's provided. It's what he wants you to have. So we have an attitude toward that. We have to be very, very careful uh, to, sh- to demonstrate our view of money. If you really trust grace enough to release life, you'll demonstrate that you love Jesus more than your money. There is no question in Scripture uh, that the way we handle our money tells God how we'll handle his power. And it's reciprocal. Uh, the, uh, we also find in Philippians that God says, if you're a good steward, if you're managing your resources well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to underwrite your, your uh, finances. You're one I can trust. I'm going to underwrite that. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to take care of you in a way that you get everything you want. I'm going to take care of you in a way that you can get what you really want. And what our redeemed heart wants is significance in his kingdom, and we want to be a part of seeing the church grow by people's lives being transformed. Marriages healed, families healed. Compassion to people uh, standing up for Christ, uh, doing kind deeds in the name of Christ. That's what our redeemed heart really wants. A few years ago, there's a, there's a man by the name of John in our, in our church, and I've known John, he's, he's about 30 now, so I knew him when he was 15, when he first came to Church of the Open Door. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, even know how I found this out, because I don't, I don't know what anybody gives at Church of the Open Door. I, I never, I mean, I would never know. I did that in one church, a little church I was in in Dallas Seminary, and it absolutely ruined my attitude. Because we'd have people stand up and say, this is what the church needs to do. Rah, rah, rah. And, I, and uh, the first thing I think of, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you gave 32 cents. One guy, one guy, he was a millionaire in this church. And he said, well, I don't like, I don't like even getting, you know, Texas, Bubba. He goes, I don't even like getting a tax receipt. That's why I don't even write a check. I just give cash. Oh, it just took every bit of sanctification discipline I had. And I wanted to say, I count the cash. There's never been more than $40 in there on Sunday morning. And the people go, the reason this church has so many financial problems, we've got too many young people and too many Dallas Seminary uh, students. I want to raise my hand and say, Dallas Seminary students are given 93% of the money here. So I can't know that. But somehow or another, uh, through the guys that discipled him, I knew that John, uh, even as a young man, was the kind of guy that would, uh, that would give away over, he never told anybody, he just got out. 
uh, he, he would give away over 50% of his income from the time he was a junior in high school to needs that people had, to the church, to missions, to whatever was going on. So he and his new bride came, came to me a couple of years ago, and uh, John and Karen is her name, and John said, hey, he's an accountant. He said, hey, uh, could you pray for me? He said, I just lost my job. And I looked at him and I said, well, I'll, yeah, I'll pray for you, but you have nothing to worry about. God's going to give you a job. Uh, but I'm happy to pray. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to pray for you. There's no, you have to understand that it's, and his wife looked at me like, what kind of a stinking pastor are you? You know, and I explained to her, he said, your husband is a steward. God's going to take care of him because God can trust him. So the first, and you know, I could turn to you a lot of passages to teach you that how we handle our money tells God how we'll handle his power. I've selected three from the Gospels. The first, Luke 16, 10, teaches us that the giving of our little, what is most important to us but least important to God, money, tells God what he can trust us with, what is most important to him is kingdom work. The second, we're going to look at Matthew uh, 23 through 24. Uh, Matthew 22 through 24. Wow, through 34? I think it's 24. That's good. Um, and, um, and it's going to tell us, it's going to talk to us about blurred vision. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. Let me just begin at verse 34. It didn't make sense. I was in Matthew 5. I thought, good night. Don't tell me I got this backwards. Uh, Verse 19. We're going to be in Matthew 6 the rest of the time. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for uh, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your heart, your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your, lie, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he has, again, no one can serve two masters, God and money. You're going to hate the one and love the other. The context here is money. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The context is money. Interesting that uh, the word translated bad in verse 23, um, that uh, this is speaking of a very serious eyesight problem. The Greek word for evil, poneros, the, the noun form is what, uh, sometimes what the devil is called, is the word he uses here. It means to be in poor condition, to be bad off to be ill. Um, and, and then it's interesting to me, my, one of my uh, partners at Church of the Open Door, Colin McDougall, uh, planted a church of, among a, uh, an unreached tribe in uh, Ethiopia called the Dasanach. And I was talking to, to Colin about this, and I said, you know, this, this is a money thing. This is talking about an evil eye that darkens our soul. Not in a way that causes us to lose our salvation, but in the way we live. And Colin read it, and he said, Poneros, that's right, it's an evil eye. 
He says, guess what the Dasanach say when someone is coveting their neighbor's stuff? And, you know, everybody covets. Even if all they have is a little hut, they're still coveting their neighbor's stuff. Or somebody steals from them. They say, that is the evil eye. Coveting is an evil eye. I really believe that what he's teaching is that this is a, an iris, uh, a virus of the eye. Uh, Satan himself is poneros, the evil one in Matthew 13. Jesus uses this term, evil eye, to speak of the covetous attitude of those who begrudge the grace of the landowner who overpays the other laborers in the vineyard. This is all about grace. And they're looking at it and they go, hey, well, this guy, I mean, this guy got as much grace as I did, and, and he didn't serve as long as I did. And Jesus calls that covetousness an evil eye. Materialism will, is a virus of your eye. Your eye is the window to the soul. It's a, it, what I always think about is when you go to the eye doctor, and, um, and, the, and, and he says, okay, I'm going to put these drops in your eye. And, and I'm, a, I'm a kind of guy that's disciplined, and I'm thinking, man, I can do this. And he says, uh, have somebody bring you so they can drive you home. I do it, okay, fine. But somewhere in my mind, I always think, well, I'll be okay. But he puts those things in your eyes, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It's like, oh, I, can't, I, I can't see. There's, there's nothing I can do about it. The only thing I can do is I can do what the doctor says. I can, time will take care of it. I believe it's the same thing with materialism. The sin of our culture is covetous materialism. Paul says that covetous materialism is an idol we need to flee from. He doesn't give us any, any uh, the, two, the two sins that Paul doesn't give us any way uh, to, uh, to, you know, in the middle of that sin to manage it are uh, sexual immorality and covetous idolatry. There's something in, in covetous idolatry, in covetous materialism that is, that, uh, you know, worship is responding to the one who made me and provides for me. And when we begin to worship the things as that's the key to our happiness and we always want more, we live with blurred vision. We're not seeing the world. We're, we're looking through the world with poneros eyes, with evil eyes. We're looking at the world the way Satan looks at the world, even as Christians. What did Satan say to Jesus? Hey, I'll give it all to you. And we're believing that's true. And the only way I firmly believe the only way to sober up is to give some of our money away in the name of Jesus Christ. It just begins to sober us up. When it comes to money, I have met so many, if you want to talk Texans, fixing to Christians. They're fixing to give someday. And they're always saying, well, this isn't a good season for me, but man, as soon as God does this or does that, and I get on my feet, and I buy, 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 and the baby, we pay the medical, buy, 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 yeah, buy, buy. Then I'll give. And then in personal discipleship, because we're raising a generation that lives over their skis in debt. And what they'll say is, I won't be biblical. I've been to, what's the name of that guy that does those legalistic uh, studies on uh, money? I mean, it's good truth, but it's like cause and effect. Ramsey. Excuse me, I'm, I'm sure I'm in trouble for that one. But it's all cause and effect if you do this. 
And they say, well, he's at Ramsey's ad. Oh, excuse the out of me. Ramsey's ad, you got to get rid of your debt, you got to cut the cut, 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 cut. Yeah, if your goal in life is to have a lot of money to do a lot of stuff with. If your goal in life is to let the Father know that you're all about his son, and if you, the only way, those people who have been, they've been telling that for years, and they're, they're more in debt now than they were 10 years ago. Why? Because they got the evil eye. They can't get sober. I mean, they think they're okay. How many times have I talked to someone? I weep. Many times I weep. Now that we have Facebook, and all the people from Church of the Open Door are on there, and I, I talk to these people, and they're the ones who told me, I don't know what we're going to do with the money. I prayed for them. And then I look, and they're saying, can't wait to go to Paris. Why? Because it's an evil lie. It just wants and wants and wants. And the only way we can get our vision clear is to give, start giving some of our money away. And it puts the world, it, it gives you clear vision. You quit seeing the world the way Satan sees the world, as stuff for me and people for me. And we start seeing the world the way Jesus sees the world, as people who need him and need his compassion and need his help through us. So the second passage is uh, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Um, Tells us how we handle our money is, is the way God knows we'll handle our, uh, his power. You and I were born with a spiritual eye disease. You and I were born with a spiritual eye disease. Covetousness. And the only cure is to cut down the amount that we use and give it away to someone who needs it or to the kingdom of God. You were born. You were born. Everyone in this room, you were born to be a taker. You were born. You came out of the womb a selfish taker. I know. I just spent a week with my two-year-old grandson that I love dearly. But that little dude was born a selfish taker. Here you go. Papa. I got, a, I, I got a answer for everything. You want some candy? I'll get you some candy. Mom's not looking. I'll get you some candy. Anyway, that's a whole different deal. <laughs> you were born to be a taker, but you were reborn to be a giver. You were born to be a taker. I was born to be a taker. I was reborn to be a giver. I was born to be selfish. I was reborn to be unselfish. I was born thinking about myself. I was reborn to think about others. I was born to hoard. I was reborn to be generous. That's what the Holy Spirit did to me. And then finally, a very uh, famous passage. We've already read six, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Luke 16 says that God, if we will uh, trust, if, we, if God can trust us with our little, he'll trust us with our much. Uh, 22 through, uh, 6, 23 through 24 the disease is covetousness. The cure is giving. This eye disease, Third Matthew six nineteen through twenty one, tells us that our heart and our money are inseparable. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Which, 
is just logical and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the first one is a motivation. You want to invest in something that'll last? Invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in feeding the poor in the name of Christ. Invest in, in helping villages recover uh, from something in the name, name of Christ. Invest in, in something that's going to tell people about Jesus, something that's going to encourage people to follow him. Because that investment will never, you'll never lose that, that investment. But then comes the startling truth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The best book on stewardship I've ever read and I asked Ken to order a couple of cases of them, and I think he did out in, the, in the, uh, your book nook or whatever it's called, is The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. It, you can read it in an hour. It's a great book. Uh, it'll tear you up, but you can read it in an hour. And his, I love the way he puts it. He said, your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. We... Just on the plane, uh, when I was flying up from Southern California, these two guys, they must have had some money, and they were talking about their investments. And they were talking, uh, they were really interested. They had the big thing out there, and they, they were really interested. There are thousands, I guess, I'm, I don't do that, but there are thousands of places to invest. They didn't look at any of the other places. They looked only where they had invested. They were real. Their heart was there. I hope that stock goes up, because that's where my money is. God's just telling us what he knows about us. Our heart follows our money. We started a new ministry a number of years ago at Church of the Open Door, and much of it came from um, some conversations that I was having with Matt Smith. That was where a lot of this came from. Uh, he opened my eyes to some things about the church and social justice and, and, and doing things in the name of Christ that we don't have to get credit for. So we started this new ministry, and it's just rocking. Once a month, uh, we have this ministry called Treasure Box, and we can get these boxes that have enough food to feed a family for about a month that they'll be careful with it. And, and so this big semi comes up, and, and we're in Glendora. You'd think that no one, man, alive. We fill that place, parking lot, people coming in and getting this food. And we ask people, we ask people, please come be a part of it. We want to have a human touch to this. We don't want people just to grab a box and we'll go, yeah, okay. We want to just, and we're not going to go, we're not saying we'll give you this book if you'll, talk, if you'll believe in Jesus. I mean, we'll give you this food. You got to, do you believe in Jesus yet? Okay, then here. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we just want to have a touch. And we want to have conversations with them. And uh, so these, you know, these people carry these boxes out and put them in the trunk. From Some families have a big bunch of boxes. And we, we say, please come out on the Saturday morning that we're going to do this out in front of the church. And guess who shows up? All the people who have given money to those treasure boxes. Why? Your heart follows your money. They have invested in it. They have demonstrated to themselves and to God. And the Holy Spirit just pulls them to it. Heart follows our money. I love what Randy Alcorn says about our money. And, and giving in the name of Christ. He says, uh, he says, you can't take it with you, so you might as well send it on ahead. I love that. Isn't that great? You can't take it with you, so you might as well send it on ahead. We dim, we, God decides how much he can trust us with our power, with his power, 
by what we do with our money. Uh, the only cure for materialism is to give money away in the name of Christ, I believe. And third, my heart and my money are inseparable, says Jesus Christ. But these are all truths that most Christians know, and these are all truths that, um, that uh, you know, most Christians get, and, and even you know, people will say, yeah, I, I know that's true even if I'm not doing it, like a lot of discipleship stuff. Well, here's the application. I'm a grace guy. Uh, I believe in grace. Right now at Church of the Open Door, we're teaching through the book of Galatians. It just rocks grace all over the place. Radical, radical grace. I know that the law doesn't work. Galatians tells us that the law doesn't work. Galatians tells us very clearly that we have a thousand-year experiment in um, works righteousness. It's called the law. It's called Israel, and it didn't work. And then Paul gives us the insight from God and said, but for the purpose of the law was not to make anybody righteous. The purpose of the law was to expose our sin. The purpose of the law is not to make anybody righteous. The purpose of the law is to expose our sin. So I've heard so many sermons that there's no such thing as a tithe for the New Testament Christian. That's in the law. We're not under the law. And we don't. And all the materialistic Christians went, good. Uh, well, I mean, and really, it doesn't apply to us. Uh, as far as I can figure in my study, a tithe wasn't 10%, it was 23.5%. Uh, and it was, it was all sorts, a lot of it was just social, it was like income tax, and some of it was to the priests. I also don't believe, I, I, to give you an illustration, I don't believe in the Sabbath law, but I do believe in the Sabbath principle. I can't take Sundays off it wouldn't work very well if I told church at the open door, Sunday is my Sabbath. I won't be there that day. I take Fridays off. And the reason I do it is because I realize that before the law, here's the law, way before the law was God teaching the Sabbath principle. And I realized that even as Jesus was pulling us out of the law, he said the Sabbath is, uh, the, the Sabbath is for you. And I, since I'm a workaholic and that's my sin, I have to discipline myself and become accountable to follow the Sabbath principle. And here's what I think. I, I have found that God says you'll get far more done in six days. I'll get more done in six days than you can get done in seven days. And that's true. When I start working seven days a week and I think I'm too busy to do this stuff, my life, I get sick, things start falling apart. When it comes to 10%, not a tithe, but to 10%, you go way back before the law in Abraham. Hebrews 7 and in Genesis tells us that the, uh, the, the, the priest, Melchizedek, is a type of Christ. And Abraham in his joy, Abraham in his joy responded to God's mercy in delivering him by giving 10% of all he had, one-tenth of all he had, to, um, to Melchizedek. And then I look at church history. Here's what, I, here's what I've discovered, looking at church history, story after story after story, and the story in my own life, where all of the blessing and, and the partnership with God in giving really begins to kick into my life is somewhere around there. It's as if Abraham's story was given to us to, to, to be a stand. So if a, if a Christian comes to me and says, well, what do you think? I said, well, we're grace givers. We give according to grace. 
For Judy and me, where we decided to begin was at 10%. Here's what we do at Church of the Open Door. This is the radical application. We tell people to take the 90-day challenge. And it's not because we're trying to raise money. And it's not because I'm trying to raise money here. I don't have a horse in this race. I don't get any salary from you all. I'm just telling you what I think, what I know has been good for my spiritual life and has been good for theirs. We ask them to take a 90-day challenge. If they will commit 10% of their, of their money to the Lord Jesus, they don't have to give just to Church of the Open Door, they could give to the poor just 10%. If they'll give 10% in 90 days, if they would say, I thought this was a mistake, this did not deepen my relationship with God, it ruined my relationship with God, if, if they would honestly say that, we will give them their money back. Here's what we find. There's a relational dynamic. People will say things like, well, when I first started giving 10%, then I had some financial hardship, and I, I wanted to follow through on the commitment, but I was really angry with God. But God and I worked us out. Can I just submit that never would have happened? There never would have been that anger, that doubt, that confusion, that the Holy Spirit would have worked out. It will draw you closer to Christ. Giving in the name of Christ separates us from all that is important to us toward and, and, and welds us to all that is important to Jesus. So I'd like for you to consider it. If you're not a steward, become one. I honestly believe it's one of the best things you can do for your Christian life. It's one of the best things you can do to sober up from the materialism of America. And Jesus knows your heart by what you give. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray. I know this is controversial. I know it's something that a lot, of, a lot of us as Christians struggle with. I struggle with it. The year that I had to take a cut and pay and I was still giving, I remember saying, what's the deal, God? But that was good for my spiritual life. I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would use these words to move more and more of these friends at Antioch to become faithful stewards of the resources you have provided for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.